Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey, podcast listeners, Al Martin here today at Making Data Simple. Thank you for listening. As always, I always like to jump right in. So today I'm having a virtual beer with Neil Gilbert Siegel. You know, I was thinking about how do I introduce Neil, and I'm going to do my best, and then I'm going to turn it over to him. I think you're going to find, as I have found, Neil to be incredibly interesting. (laughs) We're going to have a good discussion today. He has led the creation of a large number of successful military intelligence and commercial systems. This includes the U.S. Blue Force Tracker. It's the Army's first unmanned aerial vehicle, uh, among many others. He's had significant advances in consumer electronics and healthcare. Nearly every smartphone and tablet computer in existence makes use of of the concepts for which he's been a patent holder for. Almost every movie screen in the country uses a secure digital distribution system for which Neil is a co-inventor. He joined the USC facility in 2016 after a long career in the aerospace industry, and that includes 18 years as a vice president in Northrop Grumman, retiring as a, a sector vice president and chief technology officer at the end of 2015. And there's a ton of awards that go along with this. I'll mention a couple, including the election to the U.S. National Academy of Engineering. He's a fellow of the National Academy of Inventors. He's a fellow of the Institute of Electronics Engineers, among several others. And he's also the author of a recent textbook on engineering project management. Not to mention, he's got an interesting and famous family. I understand you're also a musician. Welcome, Neil. Thanks for coming here and chatting with us. Well, thank you for asking me. It's kind of fun to work with IBM when I was at Northup. Uh, I did a lot of work with IBM, and, and now, of course, I actually carry the title IBM Professor of Engineering. So it's kind of fun. Let me dive down one area for relative to, to making data simple, the premise of this podcast. And by the way, you know, our producer wanted, you know, usually she gives me like 20 questions that, you know, we ask and I don't follow a one because I just get off on a tangent, but she only had one for you. <laughs> one question. And it, it's probably, I know why she did. It, it's maybe one of the most profound questions. And that is you have an entire chapter explaining why almost all data in public discourse is wrong and about how one can go about learning to avoid the mistakes that that cause that data to to often go wrong. So her question was, why is almost all data in public discourse wrong? You got to tell me. First of all, I should point out that in the book and when I teach, I call (laughs) that Siegel's outrageous simplification, right? All that most data in public discourse are wrong. Because it is an outrageous simplification, but I'm trying to create a mindset of skepticism and a mindset that we need to work harder and to work harder in a specific way. Because, of course, in engineering, right, we almost always depend on quantitative data to make decisions, right? We very seldom make decisions based entirely on qualitative assessment. So data are the heart of the engineering process. And so what I try to do in that section of my course in my book is, first of all, build awareness that most people do it wrong. 
and that leads them into horrible mistakes. And then I try to work through about, okay, where do they go wrong and how can you do it better? Because you're going to be, you know, I'm teaching undergraduates, juniors and seniors mostly, right? And they're going to be, you know, 99.9% of our engineering graduates go off and become engineering practitioners, right? A couple of them become teachers, but most of them become engineering practitioners. And they're going to be doing these kinds of analyses every single day of their 30 or 40 year engineering career, right? So this is an opportunity to make them better. So, but is this just a thought-provoking premise or you say, no, all data in public discourse is wrong? Pretty much all data in public discourse is wrong. You can't go wrong starting from that premise. I will tell you about a little thought experiment I did that kind of set off. All right, give it to me, give it to me. Yeah, so many years ago, I was on jury duty. So you've probably been on jury duty something, yep. right? So you sit in something called the jury assembly room while they're, you know, with 100 or 200 other people waiting for them to call 12 or 15 of you off to a particular courtroom, right? You're just sitting in that room for hours and they probably have a television set on. And so I was sitting in that room with my book, trying to read my book and the television set was on and, and, 200 people chattering around me and I said I couldn't really concentrate on my book so I paid attention to the television set and there was some news thing on about some war in some part of the world and so I pulled out a piece of paper and I wrote down the 20 next factual assertions that the newscasters made and then I did the same thing the next day <laughs> from a a public radio news broadcast. So, uh, sorry, I guess I did 10 for each or 12 and eight. I had 20 factual assertions and I put them into my calendar for a year later and I brought them up a year later and I did some research to figure out how many of those 20 assertions were true. And my decision was that two of them were true and 17 were definitely wrong and one was maybe, maybe right and maybe wrong. So somewhere between uh, 85 and 90% error rate. That really was an, one of two life events that was a big eye-opener for me. I'll tell you the other one if you want to know that, too. Yeah, let's hit, go, go to the next. By the way, th this must have been uh, predictions that they had made. No, 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 these uh, were not predictions. These were factual statements about what happened in the news today. Why did you have to wait a year to do an assessment? Or you, I, I you waited said a year because I want... I wanted to do it all at once, and I figured by then it would be easy to gather data about what was true and what was not true. Oh, just kind of looking back, and you're, you're, it's not emotional. It's not in the – it's just – and it's really easy to say, all right, black or white, this is right or wrong. Exactly. Okay. My wife has her own PhD in Iranian linguistics, and many, many years ago when she was a PhD student, she wanted me to read some papers uh, by this other linguist. And um, not that I know anything about linguistics, but I mentioned that I have law training in mathematics. And as you probably are aware, most social scientists, like linguists, use a lot of statistical methods, right? So they, they do analyses in their specialized field, in this case, linguistics, uh, some kind of statistical analysis to draw conclusions and make generalizations, right? And this happens in every branch of social science, and in addition, of course, to hard sciences. 
And so she wanted me to look at some of these statistical things. And I was horrified to discover that whereas I, I could not make any statements about the quality of, of this author's linguistics, her statistics were absolutely flat out wrong and invalid. And no matter how good her linguistics may have been, the conclusions were either wrong or at least unjustified by the statistical analysis. And this was these were peer-reviewed <laughs> academic journal papers. And these were basic mathematical mistakes. Um, and that started me looking skeptically at first other academic articles and then everything. And I discovered, just like with my, my news experiment, most of the data factual assertions are wrong. Now, look, the first avenue I thought you were going to go down is, you know, I'm in the data business. So uh, I will say this, that there's so much redundant data. There's one source of the truth. There's what we call data swamps. Uh, and we got, you know, cleaning data is like 80% of the time of anything like you're doing with AI or not. So, I mean, there's a semblance of, of that uh, is associated with what you're saying as well. But what do you do about it then? I mean, so obviously you're suspect of everything you're hearing. How do you reconcile that? So what you have to do is you have to start understanding what are the common mistakes. And, you know, it's not one or two mistakes, but it's not a hundred mistakes either. I kind of identify 10 or 15 common mistakes. And that's a number that one can manage and one can learn about, right? And different kind of analyses are, are more susceptible, right? So a very common one is, as you, I'm sure, understand that whenever you make a measurement, there's both what we call signal and noise present in that measurement, right? So when I get on the scale and it says I weigh X pounds, that number X is conditioned both by my actual weight, but by errors in the measurement process, right? The floor might not be exactly level or whatever, <laughs> right? And so what you have to do is separate the signal from the noise. Um, and it turns out that under a lot of conditions, especially conditions that apply in engineering projects, there are actually a lot of fairly simple techniques to separate signal from the noise. But once you realize that this has to be done, it's very easy to notice that tons and tons of analyses don't do it. And therefore, the variation that they're reporting or the trend that they're reporting is probably just random fluctuation and may have no statistical significance. There's a whole thing that happens with human beings, uh, a second example here, that happens with something called conditional probabilities. And, and, and for you probably understand this, but I'll explain this for you, right? So yep. very often, if you have a, a set of facts about a situation or a set of measurements about a situation, they're not actually independent measures. Right. So you might have three or four facts about a situation. What human beings tend to do, according to the psychologists, is we hate the ambiguity of having a lot of pieces of data. And so what we do is we make an assessment about which data or which two pieces of data are the most important. And we dispense with the others and we draw our conclusion or base our analysis only on the others because we hate to deal with all those pieces of data. And if the measurements are independent, 
you can reach a valid conclusion sometimes doing that. But if there's what's called a conditional probability, that is, there's interaction among those facts, it can lead you into horribly, horribly wrong things. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who's written four really brilliant books, the first of which is called Fooled by Randomness, uh, second of which is called The Black Swan. He has a beautiful example with physicians. I don't mean to pick on physicians, uh, but he has a beautiful example <laughs> with physicians in there who, after all, are trained that when they have a patient that comes to them with a particular complaint and they run a test and they get a test result, the doctors are supposedly trained to interpret the statistical uncertainty, right, the the probability of a false positive or a false negative associated with that test, to tell the patient, whether they're sick or not. Taleb has this beautiful example where the doctors get it almost completely inverted in a situation where the actual probability that the patient has that disease is less than 2%. Almost all the doctors said there's a 95% chance that the patient had the disease. So since the answer can only be between zero and 100, those answers are about as far apart as they possibly can be. And doctors are supposed to be trained to do this, right? So human beings love to throw out pieces of data and pick which are the most important. And if there are conditional probabilities, which in engineering is very, very common, um, that can lead to completely upside down results. Another mistake that people make um, is the use of weak statistics, right? So think of the typical quarterly announcement from a company, right? Profits are up 2% in the last quarter. That is a statistic that compares one current measurement to one past measurement. And the mathematicians will tell you that that is just about the weakest possible statistic, which means it has almost no predictive power. And of course, no actual stock professional would make a buy or a sell decision based on a piece of data that's so weak. They have much more sophisticated. But, you know, the companies talk like that because I think people can understand it, but it has no statistical significance, no predictive power at all. But we use those kinds of measures all the time. Every project manager, right, will do a thing of saying, you know, my predicted cost is now... 2% higher than it was last month and stuff like that, right? And those are horrible, invalid, weak statistics that are a very poor basis for making decisions. And so it turns out in engineering, they're, most of the context we deal with in engineering, they're very simple methods for making, for using much more powerful statistical methods that can give you much more uh, quality in the predictions. Um, using data outside its range of applicability, right? This A silly example, right, is we've gathered data about red cars, but we're drawing a conclusion about blue cars, right? And, and sometimes the color makes no difference, but if you're talking about visibility in fog, right, the color might be critically significant. Or another one where people make mistakes all the time is they we always extrapolate data, Right. Um, we make some measurements and then we extrapolate to a place where it's either expensive or impractical to make measurements, right? Extrapolation can be fraught with errors, um, right? The example I like to use, let's say that you did an experiment based on cooling water from 50 degrees Fahrenheit to 40 degrees Fahrenheit, and you're measuring the viscosity. 
You know, what would you predict about continuing to cool the water from 40 degrees to 30 degrees? You know, decreasing the temperature by 10 degrees from 50 to 40 had no material effect on the viscosity. So you might say decreasing the temperature by another 10 degrees from 40 to 30 will have no material effect on the viscosity. And of course, water freezes, right? And that is a material change in the viscosity. And so extrapolation is an error where people make a lot, and, and so on and so forth. So, so there's a, a dozen of these kinds of things and a whole bunch of logical fallacies. Um, there's this famous thing called the fallacy of the silent evidence, right? Where people tend to gather reinforcing evidence rather than contrary evidence because we're human beings, <laughs> right? Yeah. That's what we want. Um, a beautiful example in engineering is the way we design our test programs, right? We have a specification with a thousand shells in it and we get paid when we prove that we've passed all 1000 shells, right? So we design tests for each of those thousand shells <laughs> and those tests are carefully designed that the system will pass, right? And we're not gathering a representative range of data about what happens to our system. The, the silly example that I like to use that helps people get this in their mind, if you read books about daredevils bragging about their exploits, you're going to get a distorted view of how dangerous or not dangerous it is to do these exploits because all the daredevils who died in their exploits did not write a book about it afterwards. Uh, those are all great examples, by the way. And it's interesting you mentioned investing because I think a lot of this, uh, these character flaws or whatever you want to call it, are you know human flaws are around investing and what the, what the market does. And I often follow that. But I'm a real, I'm a fan of studying behavioral economics. I don't know if you've read the Undoing Project. Have you heard of this book? No. By Michael Lewis. He's the same guy that wrote, uh, I think, Moneyball, The Big Short and stuff. Uh, but it's about two psychologists, Daniel Kahneman. And I think it's Amos Tversky, mm -hmm. and it's just a bunch of different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, well, it, that's what it's about, and it, it, it talks about a lot of the studies they did. I mean, just fascinating. I mean, one that, I mean, just to oversimplify, they did so many different studies, but like, there's ones like, like if you flip a coin a hundred times, and it, uh, let's say it lands on heads, all hundred, and then you ask anybody, you know, what's the chances of it landing on heads next time? You know the the chances are obviously still fifty fifty. They haven't they haven't switched, but human behavior will be like, well, it just hit a hundred times. Uh, you know, I think it's higher. I think it's like seventy five eighty percent. It's just ridiculous how our mind thinks. A anyway, right. I think right. it kind of so, lines so, so what I you're saying. I have one more example I want to talk about because it's particularly relevant to big data good. and engineering. And that's good. the problem of scale. So we've all kind of grown up with the idea of examples and sets of data kind of at human scale. But the world of computers has created data sets of a scale that human intuition cannot cope with, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I remember building the, many, many years ago, 25 or more years ago, the first time I built a system that was specified in its requirements, they had to process a million data instances per second of input, right? And at the time that was, a big deal and a very novel thing and required a lot of special engineering to be able to do that. Right. So we all had studied six Sigma, you know, the process control methodology and approximately six Sigma means that you reduce errors to about three in a million, which for a human endeavor sounds fantastic. Right. 
That means you're going to have three outliers, you know, three errors every second of the entire year, right? Of, of every year of the 30 right. years you operate that system, right? The kind of normal statistical methods that we both intuit and that we're trained to, right? We all see pictures of the Gaussian bell curve and we all expect everything to be symmetrical and we all expect everything to have very small tails, right? And, and engineering systems are not like that. They can have big tails. Engineering phenomena are almost always highly asymmetrical. There's a lot more stuff on the bad side than the good side. A simple <laughs> way to think of that is there's many, many more ways that an airplane flight can be late than it can be early, right? It might leave the originating gate late, but it will never leave the originating gate early, right? And yep. I, I was on a flight, a three-hour flight once that was 36 hours late, right? It can't be 36 <laughs> hours early. Engineering phenomena is full of asymmetries and big tails yeah. and completely non-Gaussian behavior. And so you can't even use terms like mean, right, or median. They have no meaning in a non-Gaussian set. And you have all these errors, you know, if you're doing a million data instances per second, even if the data are six sigma good coming in or the operators are six sigma good, which they never are, by the way, right? They're probably one in a thousand would be a miraculously good input stream. You're still getting three errors every second of every day. The standard statistical methods actually tell us to throw out the outliers, right? That's what they mm -hmm. teach us. Mm -hmm. But when we design engineered systems, we have to cherish the outliers and learn how to protect our system from going bluey, right, when they happen. They're going to happen. So the whole problem of scale of modern engineered systems drives us into huge design errors. So fantastic. I presume that your book will help address a lot of these questions that we went in today, engineering project management, right? I, I know it's already out there on Amazon uh, and uh, folks can get it. Where else can folks, uh, any, the listeners reach out, Neil? I mean, what's the best place to to get in contact with you or to get your book? I think Amazon's one place. Any other yeah, locations? Amazon's, Amazon's the obvious place to buy it. You know, I have a, a website that has some of my publications and that talk about some of these things. And what website is that? Uh, neilsiegel.usc.edu, N-E-I-L-S-I-E-G-E-L, -E -E all one word, dot .usc.edu. Um, and there's a, a section on there with publications and things like that. But uh, sure, by all means, you can just reach out to Amazon for the book. All right, we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, I have one more question for you, uh, because I think that was interesting. We were starting at this before the podcast began. You've got somewhat of, of, a, of a famous family, and you might think I'm talking about your, your brother, Jack Black, which is, a, is an actor in the U.S., but I'm actually talking about uh, your mother, which is Judith Love Cohen, and I understand her to be an aerospace engineer. Is that where you, you got your love for engineering? 
Well, actually not, because no? I, my first two degrees were in mathematics. Not I, yep. I never took an engineering course. And then I went to work at an aerospace company as a programmer based on my, my degrees in mathematics. Um, and I discovered systems engineering on the job. My mom was an electrical engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually not. I mean, I was aware of the existence of engineering and I was aware of the existence of the aerospace industry because that's where my mom worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose I must have had a view that she she liked her job and she liked her company. Um, kids pick up on things like that, right? But I actually, when I was young, I kind of had the mathematician's um, sneer for engineers, right? Uh, but I learned. Well, she, uh, to my understanding, if she was an electrical engineer, I'm an electrical engineer, so I've got a, an affiliation there. But she worked uh, as an engineer on the in missile uh, and the Hubble Space Telescope. So, I mean, you've got a lot of engineering in your and family as Apollo, well. And the Apollo space uh, program. Yeah, right, the Apollo Moon Exploration Program, too. Yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. I mean, that, that's a story in and of itself. And I know you were starting the call. You were talking about you, the uh, – I, I, unfortunately, sorry to hear that she passed away uh, a few years ago her uh, legacy is kind of being driven through the interest in, in all the things she was able to accomplish. Yeah, I think it's cute. Of course, when she started engineering school in 1952, there were very, very few women in the classroom, at least in the electrical engineering program. She always told me that she never saw another woman in all her years as an engineering student. Um, USC tells me where, where she went, got her bachelor's master's degree. USC tells me she was actually the eighth woman to graduate from their engineering school. So kudos for them for letting mm-hmm. in fairly early. She went to night school because she worked. And so maybe she just didn't see any women there. Um, but my classes are now more than 50% women. That's fantastic. So I, I thank her for every time I walk into the classroom and see all those young women in my classroom. Well, speaking from a guy that's got three daughters, you know, amen to that. And that uh, I, I, you know, in doing my research around uh, your mother, she's got a lot of, uh, uh, what is it? You can be what you want to be. I mean, she had a lot of different sessions. Yeah. So, so she, of course, was something of a pioneer and a proselyte about promoting women into STEM careers, right. engineering, but other things. And so when she retired from engineering, she wrote a little book aimed at like eight-year-old girls called You Can Be a Woman Engineer. And she couldn't find a publisher. This was in the early 1990s. And so being her, never taking no for an answer, she went out yeah. and started her own book company. About 20 more titles filed. You could be a woman architect. You could be a woman astronomer um, and so on and so forth. And uh, I think in the end, uh, by the time she passed away, she had sold more than 100,000 of those books managed and organized thousands of workshops with you know schools and libraries and girl scout events so she must have influenced tens of thousands of young girls to consider stem careers yeah she, that's she fantastic really she was really fanatical about the books that's fantastic man great story hey thank you for being on the podcast i learned a lot always a pleasure talking to a fellow engineer any last comments that I may have missed or anything you want to say to the listeners? Thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm delighted to talk about these kinds of subjects. If you want more, there's my book, um, or you can apply to the uh, USC engineering program and, and come and study with me.
That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Neil. I appreciate it. And, and always thanks to the listeners. Hit us on almartintalksdata at gmail.com and we'll get uh, your requested topics and or uh, interviewees on. Thank you. Thank Next you. time I'll, I'll see you on the podcast. Thanks, Neil. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and out. Oh.